Hello and welcome, this is Verity again and we are here today for another episode in the Global Sport Conversation podcast series. As hopefully you all know now, it's a collaborative project between multiple centres here at SOAS, recorded by SOAS Radio and funded by the Research and Enterprise Office. Today's episode is uh, fabulously interesting because it is a follow-on companion piece to a previous podcast with uh, Wandy Nevins and Gavin Price. And I'm really pleased to introduce our main speaker for today, uh, Dr. Stuart Murray. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Verity. And hi, Wandy and Gavin. Hi, Verity. Hi, Stuart. For um, our our listeners, Stuart, could you just give a little bit of an insight into who you are and even though you have a very Scottish accent, where you currently reside? Yes, well, the the first Scottish accent, I live live in Australia working at Bond University and um, doing a lot of consultancy work with the Australian government and uh, new sports diplomacy strategies and sport and soft power. Um, and also working with a lot of non-state sporting actors in Australia, Cricket Australia, Formula One, um, and so on. But I'm also a fellow at Edinburgh University, the Academy of the Academy of Sport. Um, background is the love of sport and diplomacy. My uh, I come from a sporting family. My father and uh, his two brothers were senior professionals in Scotland for, and then senior coaches. Uh, I learned my diplomacy at a very tough school in. Glasgow, um, where I learned very quickly to uh, to make peace rather than war, because I wasn't the the biggest uh, chap. Uh, so that's that's pretty much my my rough rough background. I've been studying mainly IR and diplomacy, um, and then somehow figured how to bring my love of sports into it. And it's that's been about six years. I've been writing and and working in sports diplomacy, and it's been a, a fantastic journey. Brilliant. And I must congratulate you, as I'm sure Wandy and Gavin will share, um, on the brand new release of your monograph, your first book. I guess from my perspective, it compiles these debates of diplomacy, governance, international relations around sport. Um published by Routledge, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Uh, fabulous. And it must be, you must be so pleased. I am, I am. And it's, it's, it's out today. I mean, that's the why I'm, I woke up this morning and I thought, Jesus, it's going to be a good day because uh, this doesn't happen often. And it's a, a lot of work, five years of work. And I, I can explain the shape of it roughly uh, if need be. Um, but it's, it's going to push the paradigm on significantly. There's four yeah. new theoretical frameworks to explain sports diplomacy rather than the one we've been working with. So that's the nature of good scholarship. The uh, the more you ask the question, the, the more avenues of inquiry open up. Well, definitely, um, for listeners, the link to your book will be in the blurb of this podcast. And I actually want to bring Wandy in there for a student's perspective, because you've just studied very recently a module on sport mm-hmm. and diplomacy. And I guess from your perspective, is this something that you're interested in or to, to read? Right. I mean, I, I, I'm very much interested in it because I have seen... Uh, especially, you know, in our class, we've engaged with the recent episodes uh, with North Korea, uh, and we were able to watch this kind of go down in, in South Korea, as well as we did some um, policy analysis about what we think might happen. Uh, and and the time frame was that the day the Olympics ended, 
is what well, it started is basically that the time frame we had and so we had to project what we thought was going to happen and so it's very interesting to to see some of the pieces we've wrote and then to see what has happened from the beginning of the olympics till now and i think uh, the predictions have been interesting and to see that so i think the interplay between sports and uh, especially diplomacy and these major international sporting events are very interesting uh, especially right now what's going on in uh, Russia yeah, and uh, you saw you know Putin and uh, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman yesterday uh, together at a very interesting dynamic going on yeah and um, it was very that dynamic was interesting particularly mm-hmm. how more upset the Saudi Arabian got um, yeah. the longer the game progressed exactly. and how happy Putin looked um, mm-hmm. so from that I guess um, we'll bring in Gavin maybe to bring together because you've engaged with Stuart's work now for a or sport and diplomacy academically, but as a practitioner coming into this and as someone who spent a number of years in Australia, listening to my thoughts, Wandy's thoughts, what what is your biggest question for Stuart, I guess? Sure, I mean, just firstly to say I'm genuinely excited to, to read Stuart's book. I've seen the evolution of his work and, and how his ideas and his academic thinking has developed around sports and diplomacy, and I'm broadly aware of some of the work he does with the Australian government. So... I, I guess for, for, for Stuart, um, I'm kind of become a lot more interested in the idea of um, broader cultural engagement, maybe the use of sports ambassadors. Australia has some interesting examples <laughs> when I think of somebody like Brett Lee, who was, let's just say, um, not the most obvious candidate for a Bollywood star. But, <laughs> yeah, but you know, right. his profile on a cricketing level and, and a Bollywood so level. Singer, you have to remember as, well. as a singer. Um, I've no doubt your book explores some of these themes around the use of um, uh, non-government apparatus and the use of personalities in sport to, to, to bring people together and, and uh, maybe diffuse more formal moments between government officials or maybe to attract <clears throat> trade. Um, how, how, how much of that work now is filtering into your work with the Australian government? You know, I'm aware of some of the policies that have been developed, but but really, is there now a really structured programme around how Australia uses some of its sporting talent on a more diplomatic level? I mean, it's a, a really good question, but uh, in short, no. Um, there's, there's th- this kind of loose attitude towards it is something we're, we're trying to, to change. Um, and as you mentioned, Brett Lee before, they have um, other examples, people like Greg Norman, the, the golfer. Uh, so if you, I don't know if you know the story, but the Australians were the first to con- congratulate President Trump on his election victory, and they got his number through Greg, Greg Norman. It was Norman's played golf with him a number of times. Uh, there's good examples of Australian sports ambassadors, and then there's, uh, of course, bad ones with the the tamper gate and the ball tampering in, in South Africa. Sure. Um, but the, the, there's not a what we're doing with it. I think with working with government is, as you'll be able to uh, test to Gavin, is that the pace is different. The, um, especially for a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it's it's a traditional change-resistant organisation as has an inertia to to new ideas. So it's five years we've been working with the, the government and it's just slowly starting to to change the attitude of them. The use of sports ambassadors, what I'm saying is that it's, Australia's got these huge soft power assets that remain untapped. And when you mention sports ambassadors to the Australian government, they say, oh, but how can we get our, our players to, to you know stop training and, and come and represent the country? And I keep saying, it's thinking it's, it's not, it's the retired players uh, that you can you can actually use a lot more uh, people that are just sitting in the sidelines. Um, the the crowd's no longer cheering for them. They still have a a role to play, 
um, particularly Australia's new <clears throat> foreign policy is about building stronger links in the Asia Pacific, and we have we have dozens and dozens of uh, rugby league players from the the Pacific Islands uh, that would be ready-made ambassadors. And relationships with Papua New Guinea, we've got Chinese players over here, so there's a lot of um, a lot of potential in it. But there's a fear as well by the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that these guys will go off track or they might do a Shane Warne and um, say something silly, but this is, this is we're just humans at the, yeah. the end of the day. It's interesting, um, we had uh, Simon Cooper come in and spoke more commercially about that, and it's interesting that an athlete in retirement will still have a lot of commercial opportunities, in particular cricketers or golfers, because mm-hmm. um, of their presence and power within targeting a certain market. But also interesting, Stuart, we've interviewed uh, Marika Holtzhausen, um, an international netballer, and again, she didn't identify as an ambassador. Exactly. And it's this yeah. unintended, still haphazard, laissez-faire attitude towards the power of sport. Um, and now, Gavin, you mentioned a practitioner perspective, bringing in government, and Wanda, you mentioned the student perspective. Stuart, do you think, just given us a brief summary, you've mentioned that you want to shift um, the paradigm academically with your mm-hmm. book, but for our listeners, what is the key aim or key thread of your book? You know, a very big question. I think it's driven by, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a, an academic that's interested in, in bodies of knowledge and particularly theory, um, how you can you can use, I'm obsessed with theory and Karl Popper in particular, and I study a lot of Socrates, he's my... My dog, I love that guy, and it's it's about how how little we know of this this subject. So it was driven mainly by an academic interest to build a concept, um, but with policy outcomes eventually, and really to to try and um, you mentioned the the power of sport, which uh, is a line from the famous Mandela quote um, that sport is the power to unite. It can speak to people in a language they understand, and so on. And that quote drives me bananas um, because it's, it describes a utopia, Mandela, and he's a typical politician. He forgot to tell us how to get there. Okay. So this is what we're trying to do, I think, as academics. is um, It's all about the process. If you want to think sport can change the world, it's not about the goal you're trying to achieve. It's about how you do it. So we're obsessed with processes and the work we're doing with ministries in particular. Uh, that's what we're trying to do, build capacity, build process, um, not talk about policy ends, but how you how you get there, and the yeah. book in that respect is is going to going to shift the goalpost a little bit. Okay, fabulous, and it's interesting because that links to the discussion that Wandy and Gavin were having in the last podcast, uh, the companion piece to this. As we were speaking, I guess we almost fell into the trap of or went would have sent you bananas um, <laughs> because we were discussing these utopian elements and the potentials of sport in Africa and an and Australian context specifically. But then on reflecting and actually we received a, a question from a, a listener in Germany about, well, what about the hidden voices or the disenfranchised from sport or an indigenous population? Um, and the, the, the example that was given in the email was around Kathy Freeman in Australia. So from all three of you, um, any reflections on the darker side or less to do with this power, maybe disempowerment? Um, I'm going to chuck that at Stuart first, then we'll bring in reflections from Wandy and, and Gavin. It's interesting you mentioned Kathy Freeman, and it's, a, it's an old example now. It's 17 years or 18 years old. 
um, but it, it does speak to a number of elements that sport has the, the power to represent the disenfranchised and the downtrodden and particularly there's a really interesting application we look at diplomacy as something between nation states and the international relations system but there's a, a potential for diplomacy if you look at it in a, a sense of estrangement or alienation as, as Derain did and uh, he borrowed from Karl Marx and this, this idea that most people uh, are estranged and you can sports a common language that breaks down barriers uh, via contact um, this idea that the hostile groups can meet them and they can play sport and and funnily enough you mentioned the indigenous Australians uh, I wrote a lot about that in the book about anthropology and sport and the indigenous Australians were um, within a, a nation but they used sport as a means to sublimate conflict and um, to bring people closer together so there's a domestic what I'm trying to say in a very typical academic long way is there's a domestic application for sports diplomacy as well to use sport to bring in the Australian example the European settlers and the indigenous population closer together but again this is something no one's no one's thinking about the sports diplomacy strategy in Australia it looks out as most most government strategies do but it doesn't look into the country but this is going to change okay Gavin any thoughts or reflections on that Sure, I think that's a useful segue into the um, companion podcast. We, we, I mentioned an example of the um, Asian Confederations Cup game quarterfinal in Canberra between Iran and Iraq, which was, you know, a, I, I was at that game and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the atmosphere was electric, it was fantastic, it was very friendly. So there you have um, um, two countries with, with, with a, a challenge in history, two sets of fans coming together for a positive reason to bring people together. So um, I think that, that that's a fantastic example of, of, of where there was possibly an opportunity maybe for the Australian government to work with some <coughs> of its um, second gener- generation um, population from Iran, Iraq and other places. And there, you know, there, there were a whole bunch of other uh, countries at that tournament from, from, from some, some interesting places in the world, um, North Korea, for example, um, South Korea, Japan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the opportunity for for, for um, dialogue between fans and and also between um, maybe people who are interested in business or trade or, or on a government to government level was there. Did Australia make the most of it? Arguably, maybe, maybe, maybe not. We could talk about that for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, can I can I tap on sorry jump on just while we're we're on that that subject? Um, I, that's I think you have to understand. That, so if you know, if governments are driving sports diplomacy, can they change the world? Well, no, they can't because governments are concerned about trade and security and they, they see something like sports diplomacy as something soft and fluffy. It's an accoutrement uh, to traditional foreign policy goals. So the, the real power, I think, of, of how we can change the world is through non-state sporting actors. And that includes um, clubs, players, fans, as, as you mentioned, Gavin. And if you can think about someone like Colin Kaepernick, the American NFL player, and, and Eric Reid and many others who, who give a voice to uh, the disenfranchised again, and they become representatives. And somebody like Eric Reid, I don't know if you've ever read anything he's, he's written, but he's so eloquent, he's a, he's a, he's a lover, he's a beautiful writer. Um, and that is, is a, a kind of new model. And through silent gestures, much as... Uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos did in, in Mexico all those years ago. That's the that is the power of 
uh, of t- uh, that we need to tap into. Um, it's the non-state sporting actors. That's so. That's one category you can look at. Governments can't see past their national interest. They've never been. That's never going to change. Uh, like it or loathe it. So we've. That's how we have to think differently about who is who should be the custodians of of yeah. this Mandela type aspect of of sport. Sorry, one day. No, no, no problem. Um, you know, I I kind of see sports as really just a medium. Um, I, I think that there. Its capabilities are, in a lot of ways, overhyped, and it's the darker side uh, is also, in, in a way, overhyped. Uh, I see it, especially, you know, Verity knows. Uh, I wrote about sports and sports for development, uh, and I think that my opinion on this is that the promises of these programs are fundamentally too too much removed from the reality on the, on, on the ground right yeah. they promise sports will deliver uh, a huge amount of social change but these things cannot be done through sports but i think sports provides the opportunity to address some of these uh issues in a way that perhaps uh, a government official cannot do it um, in terms of the private sector i also believe that sports provides an opportunity for businesses to come together and to kind of expand their markets, uh, and we were talking earlier in the in the last podcast about uh, some of these African nations who are k- building their capacity to be able to host uh, international sporting events. But in order to have this capacity, there needs to be a fundamental uh, technological transfer and. Uh, technical skill transfer um, and investment in infrastructure, right? And so that has rebounding effects, you know. Um, when when you look at a stadium, it's not just a stadium. There's people selling goods and, you know, merchandise and whatnot. So th- there's little effects that uh, empowers individual communities um, and businesses. And so I, I think sports is a very effective medium, but I'm not sure it is the end all. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a way, it's a means. Yeah, and that, that means, I think we, we write about that, if, if diplomacy is a means to a foreign poli- policy end, um, then sport is just a means to a means to a foreign mm-hmm. policy end, to, to kind of sound elaborate in that, that respect. Um, but I, I think you mentioned, it was really interesting that you mentioned earlier the South North Korea, and maybe we can, we can talk about some of these case studies that are in the Russia, obviously, for the moment, but um, this South North Korea breakthrough that was achieved at Pyeongchang, mm-hmm. Um, it just reeks of 1971 and ping pong diplomacy, um, and it was it, this just as 1971. This was not a spontaneous moment. Um, it was negotiated. It was planned. It was staged, um, and it's very, very tradition. That's traditional sports diplomacy. That's a government co-opting sport for uh, national purposes. Um, but it's who, who cares if it gets the if it, it makes a difference in, in that respect. But I, I think that's what's really interesting in international relations, the resurgence of nationalism. And this has been mirrored in sport, which is but a parody. Going off that point, um, you know, this is kind of seen the North Korea, South Korea is kind of seen as a positive, right? But if you look at uh, Russia's involvement during the Olympics, you know, Putin waited a couple days after uh, to go into, uh, you know, Ukraine and the issue with Crimea. And so that was kind of this idea of this... Uh, uh, treaty and mm-hmm. where you don't have any kind of conflict during the Olympic truce, right? Yeah. So that can be a negative aspect where, uh, you know, this whole international event is used in a way to kind of wait out 
you know, this kind of, this is, that was a very planned, uh, yeah. it took a long time for them to do that. It didn't just happen in a couple of days. Well, it's, again, um, we have to talk about Russia. It's 2008 Olympics and um, they were in clear violation of the truce um, because they were at war in, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they were still invited to the, uh, to the event itself. And the story of, of the head of state, whether or not he was going to appear in Beijing in 2008, and um, he would not appear until a, a, a border agreement that had been sitting in the shelf for 27 years was signed, and then the man appeared. Uh, so that's the, um, it's just that's that's why I don't I don't really like this category. It's uh, governments coming in and uh, using sport for for government ends in that respect, and and that goes back to the this this nationalism element again. Well, <laughs> I think that if that isn't a good enough advert for someone to consider um, reading your book, then I'm not sh- too <laughs> sure what would persuade. Um, I'm going to take prerogative to ask for 30 second sort of real snapshot thoughts because you guys have been speaking across a number of different elements, which is brilliant. I mean, we've got, we are currently in the Russian World Cup. Um, we have got sport mega events, a, a constant trail or sport medium events are a constant trail. Uh, 2022, you've got Birmingham, and then 2024, you'll have Beijing um, and the Winters. If you were going to speak to a policymaker or a local community member, 30-second thought on how should they prepare? I guess, you know, the, the kind of question I have surrounding is this capacity to be able to host these events, you know? So if you look at the Olympics, how can perhaps maybe the UK export this as a, a commodity, you know, use this in consultancy to other countries that may be emerging and wanting to host major international events. And I think that's, a, you were talking about earlier about there's a real asset that's not being utilized and how, how could you do this? So right now, it kind of seems like the trend is going towards multiple countries hosting these kind of events. But in emerging countries, uh, they will eventually host these. And so how could you use this as a commodity that you could, uh, you know, basically use, use this to negotiate as part of your foreign diplomacy? Gavin? Hmm. I think building on one of these comments, these, these mega events, um, you know, there's always the question mark around the legacy that we talked about. And it's making sure there's some kind of systematic plan of activities that flow on after the event. And there could be a variety of streams. One, be, one could be on a, a cultural engagement level. One might be around city or nation branding and, and tourism and, and, and that kind of thing. And then another is about, well, you know, what's going to happen to all this infrastructure? Is it actually going to benefit the wider community? And not, not just not just the c- country it's in, but, but would it be used for maybe, you know, a sub-regional event? So a, a good thing that's happened in Wales on the back of the Champions League is they've got the UEFA Regional Cup that's come. Mm. Now, I don't believe they would have attracted the, the UEFA Regional Cup without the success of the Champions League. So there's a positive legacy there, but but there's definitely some gaps in that model. So that's just my padding comment, I guess. Okay. And Stuart, wrap it all up for us in a, a wonderful way, please. Well, obviously, um, it's, you have to read my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how do I describe 110,000 words and 30 seconds um, but I, I really think it's we, we live in different we live in a different era um, through the globalised world with the digital uh, revolution has changed everything so I think in this renewed environment we live in what what can sports diplomacy do that's the, the question we have to ask and we can we can imagine anything and that's the power of of theory if you describe an end and a vision then we can work our, work our way 
towards that. But uh, I, I think sport can change the world, but we need to do an awful lot more work um, in the classroom and in the, the cabinet rooms. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure that we add in all of your contact details at the bottom of this podcast in case anyone's listening and wants to know more. Yeah, um, please, anyone, um, feel free to email me or, or drop me a line. I'm very, very keen and thank you for the opportunity as well. Yeah, of course. And thanks again to Wandy and Gavin for returning to the studio. Much appreciated. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Brilliant. Well, that brings us to an end of um, another podcast and a really cool companion piece if you haven't listened to the first one the link is in the blurb below uh, we'll have more coming out soon as well as ongoing events here at SOAS um, just check out our events pages or contact us via email or social media um, stay active and keep conversing <laughs>